Okay. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a very festive Gresham Hotel. Good morning. How, how's everyone this morning? Good. Very good yeah. yeah, really good. A little bit tired now. Last week is kind of catching up a bit, but good. Very good. Good form. Let's just have a, a couple of quick introductions before we get going. Um, my name is Morris Crawley, and I'm playing the role of Mr. Bergen. My name is Aileen Myven, and I am playing Miss O'Callaghan. And my name is Morgan Crowley, and I'm playing Bartle Darcy. So, following um, a sold-out run of previews and an amazing opening night, is the party beginning to, to settle down a little bit, or is it continuing? I think it's fair to say that the reactions in the previews have been amazing, so that was very encouraging to us, because to do a six-week rehearsal process with um, no audience reaction, no feedback from uh, an appreciative crowd, it was brilliant to hear how people might have to adjust their rhythms and deliveries to adapt to laughter and applause. So the first five previews, each one of them was so different, and now we've had opening nights, so I think honestly the the license given by opening night is to just enjoy it now. Enjoy it, and yeah. that certainly was Joe Dowling's direction was now that we've previewed it and rehearsed it to the nth degree, just enjoy yourselves. Mm. Absolutely. And also with the previews, like still we had a lot of things changing in the previews, you know, so it's just so nice to have the opening night over so that we can actually we've solidified exactly what we're doing. So we we you know we all know what we're doing and it's just now as, as Morgan says, just to enjoy it. And enjoy the audience's reaction to it as well, you know, it's such a special and, story. And what did you think of the audience's reaction on opening night? Was it what you expected? It's a lot of people that came to the previews, I would imagine. Over 50% of them would have been familiar with the story. And like, for instance, when Freddie Mallon's, the mention of his name at the very beginning, like our first preview, got a huge reaction. And you know, you know you're in such delicate territory when your audience knows what's ahead of them. They and know the story to. so well, don't they? Like everybody, I think, well, most people coming to it do, they know the story of the dead. So I suppose it was a bit nerve-wracking as well on opening night because there's a, there's a real anticipation. Um, and a lot of people there on opening night certainly were familiar with the story, were Joyce fans. So a little bit terrifying, <laughs> you know, because people have expectations. A lot of people have seen the film. A lot of people have read uh, the story. So slightly a, a mixture of excitement and uh, and slightly terrifying at the same time. Very good. Well, cer certainly based on the reactions afterwards, it, 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 everyone absolutely loved it. Um, Aileen, just to start with yourself, um, just tell us about the pr process. Morgan mentioned there was a six-week rehearsal time. Yeah, that's right. Tell us about the process of taking um, your Joycean character to life, or bringing them to life. Okay, well, in the original story, in Joyce's The Dead, actually, Miss O'Callaghan is not mentioned very much. I mean, she's a few times she's mentioned in the story, but Frank's adaptation, Frank McGuinness adapted uh, the story, and he, he really padded out that scene. Um, so I suppose for the girls, for myself and the other two girls, Miss Daly and Miss Furlong, there's a lot more to play with, which makes it a lot of fun mm. for us. Mm. Um, and I think Frank was really true to the original script, the, the original uh, Joy story, but he's also really put his own slant on it, which is lovely. There's a lot of funny moments that he's added in that are very, you know, his style. Um, so Miss O'Callaghan is, uh, she comes from a wealthy background. She's a piano student of Miss Morgan. Mm -hmm. And she's been invited to the Miss Morgan's annual dance and dinner. Uh, so it's quite an honour, I suppose, to be invited mm. to this mm. gathering because there's a lot of um, knowledgeable people there about music and 
Um, so that's really, I mean, that's that's my main role is is just to be there as one of the guests of the Miss Morgan. And, and tell us a little bit about the costumes that you have to wear. Where do you begin with the costumes? Joan Bergen designed the costumes Gorgeous. and she is just something else. Fabulous. I don't have the words to describe Joan Bergen. She is just such a lady, such a glamorous um, lady. Uh, she did an incredible job and all of the costume department, it has to be said, did an incredible job on the costumes. Um, the only thing that I am not too happy about, <laughs> and the girls know this, is the corset. Like That definitely took a while to get used to, because mm -hmm. I have never worn a corset before. I don't know how I managed to avoid that, but it really does. It affects your entire posture, your breathing when you're singing and when you're acting. Um, but the great thing about it is it does change your posture in that immediately you're brought into the 1900s, um, which really helps the character. Um, but then, of course, I, I get to, to wear the gorgeous, laced, beautiful fabrics that Joan designs. So and, and it makes, it, they're, they're certainly a little bit different from your previous role at the Abbey in, in Alice in Thunderland. Yes, slightly different. <laughs> well, in Alice, uh, I played lots of different parts, um, but most memorable one, I suppose, with costume was the one with the red PVC. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, completely different. And actually, with so many costume changes in Alice as well, uh, I think there was could have been 12 to 15 characters. There was just so many costume changes, um, which was a lot of fun, but it was just crazy backstage. Whereas with this, I can relax and just enjoy being being a lady for the evening. Very good. And gentlemen, have you any version of a corset that you have to wear or anything like I'm that that you have to get to used say to? We don't have to wear anything, not even a suspender on our stocking, which is a relief. I know there are certain actors who would insist on wearing those, you know, the, the sock suspenders the gentlemen used to wear in, in times gone by. But no, none of us are that method at all, are we? But uh, I think it's worth saying also that what's lovely for a character like Aliens, where, as you mentioned, it may not be heavily featured in the book, but it's lovely to see characters like that actually have their own backstory. And it's an even greater challenge, I think, for those actors to have to find a backstory for a character that isn't fleshed out in the mm. book. And it's a, it's a massive process and a massive responsibility on, on you uh, or on any of us who plays a smaller role that you wouldn't have necessarily dwelt on, the, you know, Greta and Gabriel are the obvious big ones, but everybody else really has to, you know, invent quite a history for themselves that has to be brought on stage and has to make sense to the other actors. So I think that must be a fascinating part of the process too. Very good. So, Mirish, you're one of nine actors who are making their debut in this production. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like to take to the Abbey stage for the first time? Well. Since the very beginning, I remember, I remember the audition process very, very well. I remember uh, getting the call that, you know, I got the job. And the very first day we came in for rehearsals, I was well aware of who was going to be in the production. But, you know, walking through the halls, you've got John Millington Singh staring out at you, and you've got Lady Gregory. I thought he was dead. But <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing about this portraits. The portraits. <laughs> Um, so you're climbing the stairs and you're thinking, okay, get into this room now and just be, you know, make a good, good first impression. And then you go to sit down at the table and you look, look out those big windows and you see flying over the GPO, the tricolour. And you're thinking the weight of this theatre, the history of this theatre, you know, it it's, it's falls upon all who perform here. And everybody has to respect that history. 
and next thing you sit down at the reading table and you have Rosaline Linehan on one side and Larkin Cranish on the other side and you're introducing yourself. So you're thinking, oh my God, pressure, pressure, no pressure. And then the box of biscuits starts getting put around. And you take a couple of biscuits and everything settles from there. <laughs> you're into the, and it, for six weeks, I think it was, it was that kind of experience. You were learning from, from actors who have been there for, for years, who have worked in the Abbey for many, many years. But also you were maybe given a little taste of your own style as well mm -hmm. in rehearsal periods, how, how you look at But when it came to performance, stepping out on the Abbey stage for the first time, you know, it's, again, it goes back to that history, reminding yourself of who, who has performed here, what has been performed here. Like the famous story of John B. Keane sitting in the audience when his, uh, when his plays were first performed there. And, you know, because he was, he was somebody who was rejected, like by the Abbey, and to think that, that all, all of that is there and you're following, you're the next generation, like this is the, the new generation of, of Abbey actors, Abbey performers, Abbey writers, and we're part of that. So it has been... And have you had help from your other debutantes um, in, in terms of getting prepared? Well, in, in, our, in our dressing room, there's six of us, and all six of us are making our debut. Yeah. So it is, the, the energy in there is just incredible. It's like every preview night, you know, it was so, so new to us. That, um, and they did, you know, we all have our own little stories. I mean, me and Shane, who plays uh, Kerrigan. Mr. Kerrigan, he's, he, he, me and him auditioned at the same time. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly reminding ourselves of, you know, how, I'm lucky we are to be working here, you know. And, and as you say in your blog, you're, you're, a, you're a devil for the biscuits. Um, do, you, do you want to remind people about how you made a good impression? Oh, a, a good impression was, well, they're very, they're very, very kind to us here. And, it, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, they treat us so well. Um, but, you know, when I'm at home, if a box of biscuits was passed around the table, there'd be no stopping me. But, you know, when you're starting off, when you're making the debut, you got to be... You gotta be subtle. You can't. So you, you can't so you, come in all guns blazing, exactly. or you'd be shot down fairly lightly. So you only took three biscuits. I only took three. I only took three. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Morgan, just to, to move on to the musical side of, of the production, um, it obviously plays a major, major part um, in this dramatization. And Frank entrusted you as a cast to bring that to, to real life. Um, what was that process like? Well, it was very interesting to listen to Frank on day one because his, his whole take on it was that the key for him to tell the story that he had so long loved by Joyce was music because Joyce himself was a great singer and had a great love of music and all the music of Thomas More would have been very current at the day. Like, Thomas More would have been a, a bit of a star in, in this time. So his music would have been absolutely appropriate to bring to the production. And Frank was telling us on that first read-through day that it was so integral to his telling of the story that we could execute the music. So we obviously cast it so that we could also sing, because everybody in the cast has to sing, absolutely everybody. And some of the arrangements are very difficult. There's a five-part arrangement of a song that actually was very difficult to find, but it was the song from which reputedly or allegedly Joyce took the story, the name of this last chapter of the Dubliners. 
which is the song was called Oh Ye Dead and uh, Connor Linehan has done an amazing job of writing some of the music that couldn't be found and arranging the music which could be found so the show opens with this phenomenal five-part chorale set to a string ensemble I mean live you know violins and cellos and stuff um, and it's just this beautiful setting of Oe Dead, which is very, very haunting, yet full of hope and promise. And then you have to go to a scene like um, the three students that um, Aileen was talking about earlier, uh, who come from the Morgan School of Music, for want of a better title. And um, they sing an absolutely beautiful trio version of a song which has actually become fairly pedestrian in the repertoire, which is I Dreamt I Dwelt in Marble Halls. But it takes on a whole new life when it's sung by three beautiful young women who sing it in three-part harmony. And similarly, three young men, including Moorish, come out and sing it. Again, a beautiful arrangement of this, this gorgeous song that Connor actually had to write on Bind Love because they couldn't find the music to the original song, which was a great challenge for Connor, but also a great responsibility to the lads to have to bring this to life in a most convincing way. And then you get to a scene like the dinner scene, the famous dinner party in the book, where the music again sets up the scene, essentially, because frankly no amount of candles is going to bring life to the fact that this is a historic moment not only in the Morkin family household but also in Dublin literary history. Mm -hmm. Everybody who is familiar with the book will think of the dinner scene. We were fortunate enough to be brought down to Usher's Island and the gentleman who was actually running that house had set up the table as he believes it was described in the book. And it was very special for us as a cast to have experienced that. But when the music is given the responsibility to create that scene. What do you do? So again, Conor Linhan came up trumps with this remarkable, I mean, Frank was, was very specific that it had to have this kind of pompous ceremonial theme to it. Mm -hmm. And Conor wrote this Sovereign Woman tune, which again, we sing in four part harmony, which is um, just tremendous. It's like, it's, I mean, it's like a national anthem in some ways. We're not sure whose national anthem it's like because it makes a lot of references to <laughs> Queen Victoria. But, uh, but uh, you know, there's that. And then, then of course, there's the lovely Aunt Julia comes and sings her beautiful Bellini aria, um, which is uh, arrayed for the bridal. Now, the original text would have been in Italian, but this was an adaptation made popular at the time by the Thomas More folk. And... Um, and again, we have the lovely Anita Reeves who just sings it with such charm and such complete commitment and such fragility and, and actually such skill as well because it's, it's a difficult coloratura aria. So, I mean, the styles of music represented in the show are, are massively different. We have another um, soloist, Patrick, who comes out and sings a beautiful version of Often the Stilly Night, which wasn't even in the original lineup of music, but it, when Frank saw the initial rehearsals, he was saying, I actually think this song might work better than this song. So, again, going back to, as you put it, entrusting the actors to bringing to life this very integral part of Frank's storytelling through Joyce, or Joyce's storytelling through Frank, um, that adjustment was made and this is now a beautiful solo song um, you know and then there's also of course the um, Silent Omoil sung by Anna in the show which is which is beautiful and a, again a very haunting tune and each of these has a resonance with the Joyce text for example Aunt Julia's song The Arrayed for the Bridal there's a, a section in the middle of it where she repeats the word yes 
three times, which of course is a reference back to the famous, I mean, Kate Bush possibly most famously said that to music, but it's, it's beautiful to hear subtle little things like that brought to the fore. And then of course there's the Lass of Ockram, which is the, I mean, to some people it's the theme tune, but that gets two airings, one sung croakily by myself as Bartle Darcy, who's a grumpy old fart really, and, uh, and then latterly by the ghost of Michael Fury, who does a very haunting rendition of it. So yes, well, I think you've, you've really shown that it's, it's an amazing play. Um, it has wonderful setting, wonderful acting, wonderful music. So thank you for taking the time out this morning to, to sit down and have a chat about it. Such a pleasure. Um, thank you. Morgan, I think we might finish, if you wouldn't mind, if you would like to lead us out to the front of the Gresham. Oh, indeed. Um, for a rendition of what you were just talking about, the Lass of Akram. I'll be delighted, and thank you for listening. <laughs> thank you all. Thank you. If you'll be the last of Akrin as I'm taking you mean to be tell me the first token that passed between you and me. Gregory 